Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri, The Great Festus Bank Heist, 1926. Before there was Bonnie and Clyde, Jefferson County had its own sensational story of a bank heist in the 1926 robbery of Citizens Bank of Festus, Missouri. It happened on a Saturday morning around 11.30, September 25th, 1926 that a group of men drove a stolen blue Nash coach sedan into Festus. They had previously traded out the Illinois license plates for an Ohio plate to complicate potential identification. The driver pulled up in front of the two-story brick building housing the Citizens Bank on Main Street in Festus and stopped the car. Charles Porter, the bank cashier, noticed the sedan as it parked in front of the bank. There appeared to be five occupants in the vehicle. Four got out, and one stood just outside the bank while a second stood in the road. Two of the men entered the bank. Porter said they appeared to be young farmers judging from their attire. One went to a desk and seemed to be filling out a check, while a second one strolled up to Porter's window. It wasn't until he uttered the words, stick em up, that Porter saw the gun he held and realized what was happening. Miss Viola Roth, the bookkeeper, was ordered into the lobby along with the two customers, Mrs. Charles Moss and Roger Elliott. The older bandit commanded them to lie down on the floor. Mrs. Moss outright refused to lie down, and the robber allowed her to sit, but he struck Mr. Elliot for not lying down as instructed. Charles Porter saw another man still sitting in the running automobile outside the bank. The men inside carried gunny sacks, which they used to gather money from the three teller drawers before ordering the safe to be opened and making off with thousands of dollars in Liberty Bonds, $5,000 in mortgage bonds, $500 worth of silver, and ten $50 bills. Everything happened so quickly and efficiently that Clem Casey, a young African-American resident, struck up a conversation with the man in front of the bank about the Cardinals baseball team, oblivious to the drama playing out around him. Once the loot was gathered, the two men ran out of the door. Casey then realized something was wrong and managed to get the license number as the Nash sedan sped away. Porter and Elliot chased the bandits as they got into the getaway car and fled onto Route 61, which led toward Barnhart in St. Louis. The alarm was quickly sounded, and N.W. Bricky, who was the bank president and Festus mayor, came out of his mercantile store next door and immediately joined the pursuit. The deputy sheriff and other local citizens also quickly formed a posse to catch the thieves. As they sped away from Festus, the robber's car nearly ran into one driven by Fred Schrabel, a former pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, forcing him to swerve to avoid a collision. Schrabel, now a printer, recognized one of the occupants of the fleeing vehicle. Calls were made to Antonia, reporting the possibility that the getaway vehicle was headed that direction. Deputy Sheriff Edward Statt quickly rounded up Henry Held and Charles Decker to help him as the speeding car came careening through Antonia. 
They were fast on the tail of the bandits when shots were fired. Stat drove with one hand along the narrow, winding road while shooting outside the driver's side window with the other. Henry Held was holding a double-barrel shotgun and firing out of the passenger window toward the robbers while Charles Decker unloaded and reloaded the guns. One robber climbed out of the fleeing car onto the running board, holding to the sedan with one arm as he fired back at Stat's automobile with the other. The chase went on for over six miles as the shootout continued. At one point, the Nash met an oncoming truck driven by farmer Chris Miller of House Springs. The two vehicles clipped bumpers, sending the Nash off the road. Two men came bounding out of the sedan. One dropped to his knee and aimed, firing at the officer's car. The second stood in the center of the road, firing two revolvers. Someone inside the car called for them to get back in, which they did, and sped off in a trail of dust and gravel. By this time, both the robbers and the lawmen were running out of ammunition. Deputy Stat stopped in Howe Springs to get more, which gave the robbers a little more time to flee. By the time they got back on the road, they were only able to follow the muddy tracks left by the getaway car. They ended up on a winding trail called the Narrows, which ran along Big River heading to Eureka, today's Highway W. Stat continued along that road, but lost the mud trail. He turned the car around and started back when he noticed the muddy tire tracks had turned onto a small lane leading to a clubhouse by the river. There was the abandoned, bullet-riddled Nash. The floor was covered with spent cartridges and a blood-stained bag of tacks lying on the seat. Apparently, the suspects had thrown tacks on the road to stop the pursuit, and someone had been injured. By this time, Sheriff Ray Williams had arrived. The men cautiously looked around for signs of the criminals and made their way toward the clubhouse. A man met them outside the house, carrying the bag with the bonds inside, saying he had found it in the abandoned sedan after two or three men had fled from it and escaped across the river in a boat. Welcome to another episode of Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri. I am your host, Mindy Hudson, genealogist at the Jefferson County Library. Each week we bring you stories of murder, mayhem, and scandal from the county's 200-year history. Jefferson County is located about 25 miles south of St. Louis. The story of the 1926 robbery of the Citizens Bank in Festus, Missouri was pieced together using information found in newspaper articles, vital records, genealogy databases, and local resources available in the genealogy department of the library. The area that would eventually become the town of Festus, established in 1878, has been known over its existence by many names. For a brief season, it was called Hafnerville, after a local merchant. 
It became known as Tanglefoot, Limitville, or Brambletown for a time owing to the saloons which sprang up there to satisfy the thirst of neighboring Crystal City glass factory workers, since the proprietors of the factory would not allow the sale of alcohol within the limits of their property. Once the population and businesses of the sister city grew in number and stature, residents desired a more proper moniker for their fair town. There are conflicting stories about the way the town was named, but regardless of the origin, the name Festus was adopted in the 1890s and remains to this day. In 1889, a group of stockholders from DeSoto and Hillsborough joined together to open the first bank in Festus called Citizens Bank. Franklin Wolcott Brickey served as the first bank president. By 1926, his son Norval Wolcott Brickey had assumed that position. On the day of the robbery, after a car chase and shootout, the trail of the Festus Bank robbers led to a summer clubhouse located beside the Big River, leading to Eureka. It was owned by Orville A. Bomler of High Ridge, Missouri, but was rented by Francis M. Jack Ball. When Sheriff Williams and Deputy Stat approached the clubhouse, they were met by Ball, who was carrying a bag containing over $10,000 in Liberty Bonds and Mortgage Bonds. He claimed that he had discovered it in the abandoned Nash sedan when three men ditched it and took a boat across the river to the other side. Four other people were discovered inside the clubhouse, two men and two women, who were identified as Roy Schooley, Fred Weingartner, Alice Weingartner, wife of Fred, and Hazel Ball, wife of F.M. Ball. The women were sisters. Questioned separately from Jack Ball, the others denied that anyone had crossed the river. Hazel Ball and Alice Weingartner were the daughters of Oscar F. Biederman and Lily Miller of St. Louis. Hazel married Francis T. Jack Ball in 1914. Jack was a bondsman whose office was located at 6128 Easton Avenue, St. Louis. He was born and raised in Jonesburg, Montgomery County, Missouri, where his family enjoyed a good reputation within a close-knit community. Hazel's sister, Alice, married Fred Weingartner, son of German immigrants. His father was a stationary engineer who was skilled at troubleshooting industrial machinery. Fred worked in the family business I.G. Weingartner & Sons, located at 4738 Easton Avenue as an electrician. While the sheriff and his men were questioning the occupants of the house, another man, later identified as Frank R. Smith, was found in the cornfield near the house. He claimed he had come to the camp to discuss some business with Schooley and Ball but both men denied knowing him. As a result, the whole lot of them were arrested and taken in for more questioning. At that, Roy Schooley became belligerent and shouted, quote, you don't know who I am. I'm a lawyer, end quote. In fact, Roy Schooley was a well-known lawyer and politician in the Wellston area. 
he had made two unsuccessful runs for the Democratic nomination for the state legislature. Recently, he had switched parties and ran as a Republican for prosecuting attorney of the county, citing a tough stance on crime. Changing parties did no good, however, as he lost the contest to his opponent. No stranger to controversy, Schooley's name had been in the newspaper in 1924 when federal agents raided his home on Sutter Avenue in Wellston and found a liquor still in operation on the property. In 1925, he was back in the news over a love triangle scandal involving his wife and a woman by the name of Mrs. Nancy Hennemeyer. Mrs. Nellie Schooley, the mother of his six children, suspected her husband of having an affair with Mrs. Hennemeyer, the wife of Fred Hennemeyer, a traveling insurance salesman. One February night, she sneaked into Schooley's sedan parked at his law office on Easton Avenue and waited. Around six o'clock that evening, he left the office and drove over to Mrs. Hennemeyer's house on Lexington Avenue. The woman came out of the house and got into the driver's side of Schooley's car and Schooley scooted over to the passenger side. As the car pulled away, Mrs. Schooley rose up and taking a piece of wood flooring she had brought with her, struck both her husband and the woman on the head. She attempted to climb over the seat, but Schooley knocked her back. A scuffle among the three ended when Mrs. Hennemeyer stopped the car and allowed Mrs. Schooley to drive as she got into the back seat. They ended up at the police station where they were all booked into the jail. Schooley claimed he had known all along that his wife was in the back seat and that he was only meeting with Mrs. Hennemeyer to represent her in a divorce suit against her husband. Following the incident, Mrs. Schooley filed a $20,000 lawsuit against Hennemeyer for alienation of affections, charging that Schooley had failed to support the six Schooley children, ranging in age from 18 years to eight months since his relationship began with Hennemeyer. After that incident, Schooley was charged with assault when he punched a lawyer in the face for trying to repossess his sedan over non-payment. And at the time of the robbery, Schooley was acting as attorney for Thomas Lowry, suspect in the Evergreen Park, Illinois robbery, who shot and killed motorcycle patrolman Eugene Lovely in St. Louis, who had stopped him for a speeding violation. Despite Schooley's protests, Deputy Stat led him to the abandoned Nash to compare his footprints with those left beside the sedan when the occupants fled. Afterwards, all six suspects were taken to Hillsboro to be held pending further investigation. Charles Porter, the bank cashier, was able to identify Schooley as the man who held the gun and ordered the people inside to lie down on the floor. He said that Schooley seemed to be the one in charge of the robbery. His identification was confirmed when former Cardinal player Fred Schabel said he had seen Schooley in the Nash automobile that crowded him on the road that day. He recognized him because he had printed the political flyers for his recent failed election, which had his photograph displayed on them. Bloodhounds were brought to the scene to track the suspects that escaped across the river. 
they picked up a scent, and for a time, authorities thought they had cornered them in the woods, but later concluded they had been able to escape to Gravoy Road. They were, however, able to recover about $4,000 in silver and currency hidden in a sack in the cornfield. Three revolvers and a sawed-off shotgun were found concealed under weeds a short distance away. After a little investigation, it was learned that Ball's association with Schooley was shady. He was considered something of a, quote, lapdog, end quote, to Schooley during his bid for prosecuting attorney. Ball had recently been charged with criminal contempt of court in attempting to intimidate a witness and the sitting prosecuting attorney in an effort to block the trial of Benny Bethel, who was charged with participating in another bank robbery in March 1925. Ball had signed the bond for Bethel. However, charges were dismissed when Ball apologized. During the preliminary hearing held in October 1926 in Hillsborough, the curious spectators packed the courtroom and had to be called to order several times by the Justice Philip Riley, who presided over the hearing. The air was thick with cigar smoke as the Justice and other court officials puffed away during the proceeding. Prosecuting Attorney Berkeley recommended dropping the charges against the Biederman sisters as there was no hard evidence to prove their involvement. It seems unlikely that they were unaware of what was going on, but no one wanted the notoriety of trying the women. Schooley and his wife had reconciled after the automobile scandal. However, right before court convened, Word was received that Mrs. Schooley, who was slated to testify about her husband's alibi, had been involved in an automobile accident on the Lee May Ferry Road en route to Hillsboro the previous day. She had lost two teeth and had a laceration on her nose. As soon as the preliminary trial was completed, Alice Weingartner filed a suit for $100,000 against the bank and its officials for alleged false arrest, imprisonment, and prosecution. The defendants were granted a change of venue. The trial against Roy Schooley was tried in June 1927 in Wayne County, Missouri. One of the defendants, Frank L. Smith, turned state's evidence and the charges were dropped against him. Smith had been recognized the day of the arrest by some local residents as the guard who worked the door leading to a gambling establishment located in the same building on Easton Avenue as Schooley's office. Smith took the stand. According to his testimony, he visited Schooley at his Wellston office the day prior to the robbery where he found Jack Ball and a man by the name of Allen there. He was told by Schooley they planned to rob a bank the next day, and he wanted him to drive the men back from the place in Jefferson County after the highs. The next morning, he arrived at a garage where they met Harry Huffendick. The two drove to Schooley's home in Wellston in the Blue Nash sedan. Schooley took the wheel and drove them all to meet two more men known to Smith only as Allen and Ernie. 
Smith claimed he was dropped at Ball's clubhouse in House Springs the morning of the robbery, where they found Ball trying to release his moon sedan from a mud hole where it was stuck. They planned to switch out the Nash for the moon after the robbery to throw off authorities. Smith said he and Ball worked for about two hours trying to extricate the sedan while Schooley and the others were carrying out the robbery. When the Nash returned, Schooley declared excitedly that they were being followed and there had been a shootout. Allen and Ernie escaped across the river in a rowboat, but Smith was instructed to hide the loot in the field. He was there when he saw the posse arrive and fled to the clubhouse. Schooley was found guilty of robbery in the first degree and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment in the state penitentiary. He appealed his sentence, which was upheld by the Supreme Court. Schooley began serving his sentence in March 1929. He was released in November 1933 under Missouri's three-quarter rule and additional credit for merit time. Harry Huffendick was found in Detroit in May 1927 and had been returned to Hillsboro to await trial. Huffendick listed his occupation as baker, but he was actually a habitual bank robber, having already served time in the Missouri State Penitentiary for robbery. He was tried in Jefferson County in September 1927 and sentenced to five years. He was released in August 1930 and immediately got involved in another bank robbery in Portage de Sioux in March 1931. He received a 15-year sentence for that heist, which resulted in the closing of the bank doors in St. Charles. Francis Jack Ball was next to be tried in Reynolds County. Smith also testified in his trial. How someone like Jack Ball could get mixed up in a bank robbery and involve his wife and sister-in-law is a mystery. He was sentenced to eight years in the penitentiary but filed an appeal. He was released under $20,000 bond pending the outcome of the appeal. The bond was given by Ball's father and several prominent citizens of Jonesburg, Missouri, where Ball was born and raised. His sentence was upheld and he ended up serving four years of his eight-year sentence. However, his citizenship was restored in 1937. Although it was expected that Fred Weingartner would be tried soon after Ball, the prosecution decided not to pursue the case. They did briefly indict Mrs. Weingartner and arrested her at her home on Natural Bridge Road in St. Louis County. They charged her with accessory after the fact. She claimed it was in retaliation for her bringing suit against the bank, a charge the authorities denied. Nevertheless, they soon decided not to take it to trial. Weingartner went back to work in the family business, I.G. Weingartner and Sons. He died in 1950 from a liver disease. He and Alice never had children. After all of the scandal from the bank robbery and imprisonment, the Ball family left the St. Louis area. Upon his release in 1933, Jack and Hazel Ball moved to Montgomery County where his family and friends had supported him throughout the ordeal. 
Remarkably, Jack Ball became a model citizen in his hometown after his release. He served as a judge in Montgomery County, coroner, marshal, and several terms as Bear Creek Township Committeeman. Alice Ball worked at the local newspaper and wrote several columns for the Warrington Banner until her death in 1959. Jack Ball passed away at the age of 84 in 1974. Harry Huffendick later changed his name to Harry Hale and managed to become the director of the St. Louis Pipefitters Welfare Education Fund and an agent of AFL Steamfitters Local 562. In October 1953, he was ambushed and shot down at his home by someone wielding a 12-gauge shotgun when he opened his garage door. According to newspaper reports, he was shot in the face five times. It was suspected he was associated with the bombings of the Steamfitters' offices in Vandeventer Avenue the previous February. Roy Schooley returned to his wife and children after his sentence. He opened his own hauling company by 1940. In September 1948, he drove his dump truck to the quarry at Wall Street and Laclede Station to dump a load of dirt when the road gave way and sent the truck plummeting to the bottom of the slug pile. Schooley was pinned in the cab and suffered a head injury and crushed chest. He died shortly after arriving at the hospital. He was 65. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri, brought to you by the Jefferson County Library Genealogy Department, located at the Northwest Branch, 5680 Highway PP, High Ridge, Missouri. Please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash jclgenealogy.com for more information and photographs relating to this and other podcasts. If you have comments or questions, you may call us at 636-677-8186 or email mhudson at jeffcolib.org. Join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. as we present Slaughter of the Innocent, Lewis Merrill, 1872.